Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Jonathan Post is with us today. He is professor of English at UCLA, where I did my degree uh, in, in ancient times. He served for a time there as Dean of Humanities and Chairman of the department. He's written on 17th century poetry and modern poetry. His books, including uh, uh, studies of Henry Vaughan, Thomas Brown and Shakespeare and Anthony Hecht, and a new book on Elizabeth Bishop entitled Elizabeth Bishop, A Very Short Introduction. That is our topic today. Welcome, Professor Post. Thank you, Mark. Um, it's very nice to be here, and it's generous of you to include me for this uh, podcast. And it's great to have a UCLA person. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's such a nice little study in a series of studies, uh, introductory volumes on, on different writers and poets. Now, uh, we jump right in. You open with a quotation from Bishop stating in 1976, quote, most of my poems are <laughs> geographical. You know, you usually want to hear the word autobiographical or, or uh, well, something ickle, but not, not geographical. That's pretty, pretty rare. And you add in the book an interesting old version of a map from, of South and North America. What, what is all this about? Well, good question. Uh, she really preferred geography to autobiography. In fact, she was um, quite opposed to the confessional uh, verse that was springing up all around her. Uh, this in spite of being a great friend of Robert Lowell's, who was, of course, in some ways the father of confessional poetry. But uh, Bishop loved to travel, but she also loved to describe. And each new landscape allowed her to describe something. Uh, and while it never had her own sort of image in it, she would oftentimes describe scenes with uh, animals uh, particularly. Uh, she was very involved in the descriptive act and thought of accuracy as one of the really prime things that she could bring to poetry and, in fact, does a great job of that. So geography is, is really crucial. It's not the only subject by a long shot, but she also spent a lot of her life traveling. And I can talk a little more about that if you like. Well, well, we, we will. We will. But first, you know, you mentioned something a moment ago that it's, it's sort of off topic, but if you would, what is confessional poetry? What was that phenomenon for, for our listeners? Well, confessional poetry in some ways sort of stemmed from the whole old idea of confession, confession in the sense of confessing your secrets to your priest. But uh, uh, it really began with Robert Lowell, uh, who uh, had much to confess because he was from a famous family. And suddenly in 1957 or 58, looking for new ways to think about poetry, he began writing poems that were uh, 
quite intimate revelations about himself and his family life, and almost always involving some kind of psychotic or neurotic uh, breakdown on his part. And so it became identified with a way of uh, expressing yourself in its most anxious form. And it really caught on. I mean, Lowell, you know, one of the most famous poets of the century, but there were dozens oh, yeah. of, well, mm -hmm. probably thousands of imitators, but dozens of prominent imitators, correct? Yeah, very much so. And uh, Sylvia Plath is a name you would, uh, your group will recognize right away. Uh, she was very uh, prominent and a student uh, at one point of Lowell's uh, and uh, someone to be reckoned with. And there were, there were others as well. Yeah, yeah. But Bishop, no, no, much uh, a quieter. <laughs> yeah. Would she would she have been embarrassed by that? Where she or it just wasn't something she wanted to do? I think that's a really good question. She's uh, a very reticent poet. Uh, doesn't like to speak about herself. Uh, she comes from a, you know, essentially she's an orphan, and for various reasons didn't go into describing the nature of her family involvement or her own personal uh, affections. Uh, and I think she was just always very reserved in that regard. You say she was kind of an orphan. What, 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 was, what was the childhood situation? Yeah, well, it was pretty drastic. Uh, she was born in, uh, in Worcester, Massachusetts. She's the daughter of uh, two people who came originally from Nova Scotia. And uh, her father died when she was eight months old, and her mother was committed to a sanitarium when she was five. And so she was really, uh, and during that time until she was committed, uh, Bishop was being raised by her grandmother. And uh, from then on, after age five, she was brought up by various relatives, uh, her grandmother being a sort of important focus in her life. But she really was a, a, a person who lived on her own. And that sense of carefulness and resilience uh, created a personality that didn't want to speak a lot about uh, herself in any intimate way. Uh, she did. She does. And those of us who spent a lot of time with Bishop can, can hear that voice coming out. But it doesn't come out in the sense of, oh, I had a terrible night, I had a breakdown, my lover left me, you know, that kind of uh, overwhelming uh, um, presentation. Yeah, you, you referred to her at one point as, I mean, this is what we've been talking about, quote, the most reticent of poets. And, I mean, among other things, the output relative to, to a lot of poets is, is fairly small, correct? Yeah, yes, very small. 90 poems overall in, uh, were published during her lifetime, which is really about uh, a collection of poems every, for, uh, every decade. And hmm. she was a perfectionist. And she also had, uh, she, I wouldn't say she had writing blocks. She simply just was very, very careful uh, in her writing and wouldn't let things go out until she was pretty satisfied with it. You, you know, I mean, I've taught some of her poems always in, in my American literature survey courses. And, you know, I, I, I see the reticence and the, you know, the, the, the emphasis on, you know, objective description. But what that does is make those moments when you can see some 
personal element, something autobiographical pop up, even indirectly, implicitly, it actually makes it more powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Like the end of, of well, maybe we'll talk about this poem later, the, the end of that one art uh, poem when she talks about losing you. Mm -hmm. She doesn't specify who's she talking about, what it, but, but it actually excites your curiosity even more, I think, in a way, than if she, if she did give more detail about what's going on. Yeah, that, that's a great poem, and I'm happy to reserve that for a little bit later. You can see just what you're talking about in other famous poems, too. Uh, the Fish, which was a very popular poem in the 1940s and 50s, anthologized everywhere, spoken everywhere, and I teach it all the time. Uh, it essentially seems like it's a description of a fish for about 30 or 40 lines, and it is. It's a very exact description of the fish, but it builds and it builds, and as we get to know the fish better and better, the poem sort of explodes at the very end in a moment of revelation. And uh, it's that kind of revelation, rainbow, 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 and I let the fish go. Uh, and mm -hmm. that, that seems to be very typical, the way in which Bishop moves from this extreme descriptive act, which implies reticence, to these moments of revelation. And they occur uh, very carefully and, and ones that we can be uh, extremely involved in when, when they occur, when they happen. And that's one instance of it. Yeah, I, I mentioned to listeners this uh, poem, In the Waiting Room, which circles or centers eventually on the young bishop's sense of self, identity, but it really comes through, you know, a noise she hears in the other room, a human noise, a cry of pain, mm -hmm. and, a, and, and a magazine that she's looking at. Uh, uh, and a few other details as as well. But would she have considered that confessional mode a little bit, uh, you know, inappropriate, a little bit, uh, you know, un uncomfortable in, especially when the emphasis is on really confession of, of sins or of, or of little crimes mm -hmm. or, of one's one's collapse that just was there a uh just a, a a recoil from that kind of display that's a good question she that that's a later poem in her career it uh came out it was uh written around 1970 near the end of her life as it turns out and she was making increasing forays in the sense of representing herself as a subject in her poetry. And that appears as the opening poem in Geography 3. In Geography 3, while concerned with outer geography to a degree, has much more to do with inward uh, geography. And that's why it's sort of the first poem in there. And, and, and when she refers to in the waiting room, of course, is it's, it's about the dentist's office that we've all been in, and there's the National Geographic, all of those sort of familiar things. And as you say, it connects outer and inner through this cry of pain that her aunt is seemingly undergoing in the actual dental office. But the cry of pain turns out to be really within her as she mm -hmm. sort of erupts in this recognition of who she is and the fact that at seven years old she suddenly discovers she has an identity and the identity is is one she's embarrassed about it involves her femaleness it involves uh 
her relations with others. And uh, as you say, it's a kind of, it is close to a confessional moment, but it's that kind of moment that uh, we all share, to use one of her lines, that moment when you first recognize you are somebody. You're not just a, a, a blob of protoplasm, but you're an identity and you're, and it's a moment of differentiation. And so in the waiting room has to do with just also waiting to be kind of born. And that's uh, one of the uh, metaphors that occurs there. And it's a painful process. And Mm -hmm. she's got lots of images in that regard. It's a very wonderful poem, too. You refer to something you call, quote, the Bishop phenomenon. Uh, What what is that? Oh, yes. This is the way in which uh, Bishop has sort of become a public figure. she died in uh, the late seventies, and she was a well-respected poet. Uh, but uh, in more, co- more more respected by other poets than famous during her lifetime with readers. That's right, exactly. And the fame was slow in coming, uh, but it was always among the poets initially. And but after her death, uh, she really became a kind of superstar. Largely, or at least initially, uh, though admired by poets of both genders. She also really got a, a good lift by the uh, entrance of women into the profession fields and so forth. And she taught at Harvard in the latter part of her life and had some students there, uh, Dana Joya among them, uh, who's speaking, who's spoken in your um, program before, who much admired her. And that admiration continued. And suddenly there were books upon books. And as more books came out, she actually became a, a public figure, uh, the figure of various movies uh, that were created, one in particular in 2013, Reaching for the Moon, had quite a, I mean, Rotten Tomatoes gave it like a, a, a 71%, you know, so it had a kind of public uh, um, uh, opening to it. And, and and it's just sort of continued since then. Uh, the, the current poet laureate, by the way, uh, who just appointed from Kentucky, said the reason why she became a poet is because she read it, 15, uh, the poem called One Art that you referred to earlier. And she was so taken and moved by it that uh, she, you know, um, started her vocation. You know, she, a a lot of her verse is is very loose form or, or, um, you know, irregular, while other poems she does are very tight such as that, well, well the, 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 the one art is a Sestina, correct? Uh, no, it's a Villanelle. It's a, it's a Villanelle. Yeah. Villanelle. <laughs> but very exact traditional forms. She could do both. Yeah. Couldn't she? Thank you. And that's, that's a really important point. Uh, in terms of sort of her skill set, she, she, she really, though she wrote very few poems, she, the skill set was extremely wide. And it included these kind of wonderfully sort of rambunctious, free-flowing poems in the manner of a Whitman, uh, and uh, especially describing the Brazilian uh, landscape, which was itself such a free-flowing place. Uh, but then at the same time, she could really exercise uh, the Emily Dickinson control over the small forms in, in ways that are uh, uh, were very traditional. And part of that is because uh, Bishop uh, was raised as a student of poetry. And what I mean by that is that she, she didn't just read what was being written in her, her moment. Her, the poets who meant the most to her 
really were some of the earlier poets, George Herbert in particular. Uh, yeah. And and that and George Herbert was a master of form, among other things. And and so it's, it, it, your, your your point is really good. But one of the reasons why she, she's had such a wide readership and such an appreciative readership is just because of this sort of uh, a breadth of, uh, uh, of of poetry. Let's pause for a moment to ask if you were looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You mentioned Emily Dickinson, but you also note in the book that while Bishop was drawn back to, to 17th century poets like, like Herbert, and in a way, Emily Dickinson ha, ha, was familiar with, you, you could tell she'd read those poets as well, but Bishop herself didn't make much of an identification with Emily Dickinson, who actually is, is very famous in... Uh, in the 20th century for, for all poets. Anything to make out of that? You call it surprising. Is there anything to make out of that? Well, it's, yeah, it's surprising partly because she's all, she's sometimes linked in the same breath uh, with uh, Dickinson as sort of these two uh, major uh, female poets. And there are books that sometimes compare the two together. But Bishop's own response to Dickinson was admiring but cool. I think it's because... One of the things, a Dickinson poem is always a riddle. Mm. And sometimes you finish it, and after a long discussion of it, you, you feel that you're sort of approaching an understanding of it rather than actually possessing an understanding. Yes. And, and, and whereas Bishop's poems, I mean, one of the beautiful, beautiful things about her poems, and should become clear to, the, to your, uh, your listeners, is they are accessible on an immediate level. And then they get deeper and deeper the more you go with them. It's a very different strategy from uh, Dickinson's. And I think that's uh, partly why she never found much use for Dickinson, even though she admired her and, and, and actually wrote a review about Dickinson's letters. So, there, you know, there was, it's not that she was uh, ignoring her, but she just wasn't useful to, to her in the way that Herbert was or, or uh, Hopkins, for instance. Yeah. You, you speak at one point, of things, something going on, something about her poem in her poetry in general that is the kind of useful introductory statement for, for students when you're having them read Bishop for the first time. You say that her verse is really, quote, not a thought, but a mind thinking. Actually, actually, someone else said that, and you 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 cite that as as a good as a good statement, what do you mean by a mind thinking in that poem? Yeah, this was um, this is really crucial in Bishop, um, and it happened fairly early on when she was still a, a student at Vassar. She began to think about what could be included and what could be represented in a poem, and she read an important article by a fellow named Morris Kroll, and w- which he says, "Not a thought, but a mind thinking," 
and he was speaking particularly about uh, 17th century prose writers, as it turns out, wrote writers that I knew quite a bit about. So that was not a very convenient uh, uh, parallel for me. But what Bishop really meant is that as the poem evolves, what's really crucial is that the thinking perception of the speaker is also in the process of undergoing change. And so that when you get to uh, the end of a poem, you yourself as readers have traveled a kind of journey through her own development. And it's that mind of Bishop, which is always so interesting. And in the later poems, it becomes wonderfully eccentric in some of the uh, long travel poems in particular. Yeah. You know, it's what, what you sort of have to say to students is now listen, be patient, follow this, uh, follow this through. Don't don't try to identify so clearly uh, a, a, a position by by the poet, which the poem is then an assertion. It, it really forces a, a kind of openness and speculativeness as you as you read along. That I think is a very good exercise for our average nineteen-year-old mind. Jonathan, yes? Yes, it is. And I have a little afterword uh, or epilogue to the book, which talks about the role Bishop played in the seminars, undergraduate seminars I would teach. And she's a wonderful poet, both to read and to teach, because um, if, if you trust her, if you follow through what it is she's saying and the way in which she's saying it, you'll open up and you'll also understand what it is she's saying. And that's such a different thing than bringing your own identity hardly, powerfully, and strictly to bear and say, this poem should be like what I am. And if it's not, I want to reject, you know, reject it on that purpose. Hers is a much more a, a, a poetry of opening up. Yeah. You know, uh, you, you, we, we mentioned Lowell. Uh, and they were, they were close in a way. She actually dedicated one of her famous poems, The Armadillo, to Robert, Robert Lowell. Was she, was she a guide for him? Was she uh, a model? Yeah, that's a great, that's really a great question. Again, the, first of all, the, the complexity of their relationship is borne out in a, in a single volume of letters between the two of them. Um, and readers should look at those letters um, and, uh, they, they can go back and forth. It's reading like a conversation over the course of 30 years. And as much as Bishop was attracted by Lowell, uh, she, Lowell was actually more attracted by her and came to write at various points sort of softer poems, if you will, uh, ones that were more open and less declamatory than his own uh, instinctive style was. I'm going to read the first stanzas of the armadillo and ask if you have any, any comment upon them. The poem's organized in quatrains and it has some of the, the, the verse, the lines can have irregular length here and there, but more or less the, the same, not, not too long. And we have rhyme as well. So the armadillo, this is the time of year when almost every night the frail illegal fire balloons appear climbing the mountain height rising toward a saint, still honored in these parts, the paper chambers flush and fill with light that comes and goes, like hearts. Any comment on that, Jonathan? 
Oh, it's a wonderful reading of it, Mark. I appreciate it. You've put all the uh, accents in the right place. Uh, mm. the, yeah, the, uh, I think you might very well want to know what's the relationship of uh, the title of the poem, the armadillo, to those first two uh, stanzas, uh, which seems so kind of wonderfully dreamy and as if mm. they're telling a kind of story uh, about what it's like to be, well, in this case in Brazil uh, on this particular occasion. And the uh, and and she gets you in a kind of uh, seductively dreamy mood to think. And then this goes back to what we we're talking about a little bit earlier. Uh, she's going to create that scene and develop it even further. And then, of course, the armadillo is going to appear near the end. And that's going to become a kind of great flash in the poem. Uh, and, uh, Lowell, yeah. Lowell uh, talked about, and Lowell, by the way, is one of the really fine readers of Bishop's poems. And they, he's a great place to begin with. He talked about how indirect her poems often are. They seem to be about some other topic, and then they come back to the, the subject that's oftentimes in the title like that. Yeah, she she's describing this the, these these little bags that people put little candles in, and they rise up the mountain with the... With 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 the with the draft, yeah. the updraft, yeah. and it's nighttime. It's a ritual down there in. Is it in Rio? It is in Rio. It's outside of Rio, where she was watching it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it it just you're right. It it she she pulls you into this dreamy mood, and and I want to point out in the next stanza her wit as as well. She she tosses in these little lines that make you smile, where you've got these little fire balloons in, in bags rising up the mountain. And then as you look and watch them, they go up toward the stars. Once up against the sky, it's hard to tell them from the stars. Mm-hmm. Planets, that is, the tinted ones, Venus going down, or Mars. Now, uh, Jonathan, that makes me laugh when I read that. <laughs> and so she, she's got the wit, doesn't she? She does. And then she says, or the pale green one. Uh, as it, to sort of kind of almost break up that little combination of Venus and Mars. And so uh-huh. the joke sort of continues. And then uh, these balloons, we watch them moving across the, uh, f- the, the, the really fabled Southern Cross. Uh, but yeah, she's very, and, and, then, and then just if I can continue for a moment on the same. Yes, yes, and, yes. And then, and then it begins to change where uh, something drastic is occurring though she lets it in only you know fairly slowly uh this uh sudden downdraft that's going to lead to the explosion of one of the balloons and the fire um now it uh this is something your readers might be uh, or listeners might be particularly interested in uh, uh, bishop is a it's a wonderful poem about the environment and and without being a fist-pounding environmentalist. She's very concerned about natural life and and uh, nature and the spaces around her. And this is a poem which takes that turn, where suddenly this thing which seemed like fun, and she was fully enjoying it, and as you say, kind of witty in the process of doing so, suddenly takes a drastic turn. And the drastic turn is emblematized by this armadillo who comes out and by what, these little rabbits who are uh, terrified uh, and maybe even burned uh, by this fire balloon breaking up. And it's, uh, you know, it, 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 along with other poems of hers, they really make you pause over the, 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 the indirect uh, destruction of the landscape by people whose intentions are fine. 
It's not that they're poorly intended. It's their sort of unintended consequences of what their activities are. And the poem is not right. written. It's not written to moralize that, but that's one of the things which, which comes out of it as well. Right, right. Uh, la- last question, uh, J- Jonathan. In her last years in the 70s, she's teaching at Harvard, although the Dana remembers being a student of hers, and she wasn't particularly renowned no. at, uh, among the students back then. Did her reputation rise enough to please her? Did she, in her last year, was she disappointed you mean, in in the absence of of the kind of fame that well Lowell and you know Allen Ginsberg and others had? You know, she doesn't really ever speak in those terms. No, uh, I think she was. Uh, she knew that she was not a popular teacher, and I think that. And she she was very uncomfortable in the classroom for the most part, uh, though the course, the way in which she talked about the courses that she taught, I thir- I would have been a good, a st- an eager student to be in that classroom with her. Uh, oh, yeah. So, but she wasn't popular in the grandstanding way. Never was. Uh, the I mean, there are some quotations from James Merrill about how the bishop is so good because she's so much like a uh, she doesn't try to get up on stilts, and you can. Uh, she hmm. speaks to you as another person, another individual. And I think that, that that's very much a part of her mannerisms in the poems. I think in the classes, her own reticence and shyness kept her at a distance sometimes from, from the students. But as hmm. for the absence of fame, you know, I she's remarkable in the sense that at no point that I can think of does she start counting up the poems which might be remembered in the future by later readers. Right, right. Well, for, for those who want more, and I encourage them to, to read more, the book is Elizabeth Bishop, a very short introduction. Professor Boast, thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877 877- 332-2930.